Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokanwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Rory McPherson, Head of Investment Strategy at Sigma Investment Management. If you have an investment portfolio, you are likely to have investments in equities and bonds. But some investors also have allocations to what are referred to as alternative investments. These include a number of areas such as property and riskier and more unusual assets such as commodities. Rory, what types of assets are commodities? Well, commodities, it's a big catch-all word that sort of captures lots of different assets. But when we think of commodities, we're actually thinking of the hard physical assets. So getting exposure to things like oil, wheat, industrial metals, precious metals, all of these types of things, rather than, say, the stocks that are linked to commodities. Okay. Now, why might you consider having an allocation to commodities in your portfolio? Well, commodities are very good at bringing down the risk of your overall portfolio, quite simply because they really march to the beat of their own drum. They're not linked to equities and they're not, they're not linked to bonds. So you put them in your portfolio and it should bring down the level of risk. Now, that's all very well and they've done that historically, but historically over the last sort of nine and a bit years, the performance has been really bad. So you put them in your portfolio You've diversified, but you've also hurt your return. Okay. Um, on that note, um, like you say, they've done badly, and they do have a reputation for being high risk. Why? Well, they're high risk because on an individual basis, they can be very choppy and can respond to very different things going on in the world. So, for instance, you might have a spike in you know, sugar or wheat, and that can really move the price of these things. So we think the best way to own them is to own a big basket, a broad-based basket of these commodities, which are very kind of well diversified and mixed and balanced within themselves. So if you buy into something that represents an index, which might have, say, 20 different commodities or so, then that smooths out the risk within the commodities while still reducing the risk amongst your equities and your bonds and your kind of more conventional assets that you've got in your portfolios. Okay. And is that because we don't all do the same things at the same time? Or is it that some commodities are not high risk? Or No, they're all pretty high risk. But exactly that. They don't do the same thing at, at the same time. Okay. Um, in view of the risks, what sort of investors could consider including commodities in their portfolios? Well, we think all investors, and really simply because they have very low movement and kind of relationship with traditional assets like bonds and equities. So by putting them in your portfolio, not at a big weight, but say something like, you know, maybe starting at sort of one to say 5%, combining with your bonds and your equities, you're going to reduce your overall level of risk. So all investors, and we think that now particularly is a really exciting time to be thinking about commodities. So, you know, some of the concerns in the world at the moment are that it's late cycle and that inflation is starting to pick up. Maybe not so much in the UK, but definitely a feature in places like the US. Then owning a hard physical asset is going to be really good because it captures and reflects that growth and that inflation. Are there any commodities in particular that look really good at the moment? Well, the agricultural commodities look really good. And also some of the energy commodities as well. So these have been quite poor performers recently. And so the oil price has got a 
quite a lot of headlines recently, but other parts of the energy sectors are really strong. And similarly, the agricultural commodities, your soybeans and your wheat. So, you know, for instance, these things have started to move, particularly as we've had some positive noises out of um, the trade discussions. So, for instance, the meeting with um, Juncker and Trump a couple of weeks back, you saw soybeans rally sort of 10% on the back of that with Europe saying they were going to start buying US soybeans again. So, so these kind of small, unique, esoteric type things can be really good at driving the price of commodities. If you're looking to get yourself an allocation, how do you go about doing this? Well, there's a number of ways. So you can buy a passive index, and there's a number of passive providers out there. So the usual suspects, names like, say, iShares, um, DBX Trackers, Lixor ETFs, um, LNG have just l- launched one as well, which is very competitively priced. We prefer to buy an active manager because we think it's it's um, there's a good opportunity for adding extra return within commodities. And our favoured one is the Lazard global commodities fund but there's also um, active managers out there such as say Threadneedle and PIMCO as well which are available to buy for UK investors. It's maybe worth pointing out that there's not there's not as many active managers in commodity space as there are in other asset classes principally because they've been flushed out because the performance has been so poor. So if you think of say the equity bull market that investors have been enjoying for the last nine and a bit years you know, equity markets take your picker up sort of some 300%. Commodity markets have actually lost money over that period. So that's part of the attraction is the contrarian opportunity into buying into something that has performed poorly. But in the same token, there's not a lot of providers that are left um, to, to run the money because it's been such an unattractive asset class. Okay. Now, these active funds you mentioned, do they invest in actual commodities themselves or do they invest in the shares of companies involved with commodities? They're all investing in actual commodities themselves and they're doing that through futures. So, you know, the thinking there is that you don't want the barrel of oil, bushel of wheat, you know, pork belly, whatever it may be, being delivered to your office or your, or your home. So you invest through futures and that's what, the, what they're doing. Okay, so what's the risk of um, these funds and, you know, getting exposure to commodities via futures, which are a type of derivative? Yeah. So the risk, I guess there's, you know, there's a number of risks. One, it's that the price of the commodity goes down. And that might be if the market is oversupplied, as we had kind of coming out of the China slowdown, sort of, you know, 2007, 2011, when when China started tightening. Um, that's one aspect. The other aspect is if the futures curves are unfavorable, which again is a, is a function of their being oversupplied. And that's been the problem for commodity markets over the last nine years or so, in that your price of oil, to, to use that example, might have gone up, but you'd have lost money because the futures curve was working against you. Now, in sort of financial jargon terms, that's known as contango. Basically, you're getting conned if you're owning the futures in, in, that, in that market. That's a n- nice way to remember it. Now, the futures curve have changed. So, in very simple terms, you get paid if the price of the commodity goes up. So, it, it's working in investors' favour again after a long time working against them. An added complication. So, what would you say about instead of investing 
in an ETF or fund that um, gets exposure via futures. What about investing in a fund that buys the shares of companies involved with commodities? How would you, what's your view on that? Is, could that be a better way? Because when you don't get the cotangle or um, backwardation issues that you would get um, with, the, um, with the ETFs. Yeah, it's not a bad idea that those areas of the market are cheap, as we've seen with energy shares doing particularly well recently. I mean, I guess the thing I would say on that is that you are still buying equities. So it's still very tied to what the equity market is doing. So no diversification. So no diversification. You don't get diversification. Mm. Okay. All right. Thank you, Rory. That's a really interesting roundup on the case for commodities. Tanking markets aren't a scenario many investors would wish for, but sometimes they can offer a great opportunity to buy good assets for less. Taha, you've been speaking to a manager who thinks market dislocations are a great opportunity. Why? So I've been speaking to Hugh Sargent, and what he says is that um, in times of dislocation, like we saw in the financial crisis, the Eurozone debt crisis a few years ago, and kind of the volatility you've seen more recently, that these a lot of companies that aren't necessarily bad companies see their share prices fall quite a lot, which means they become very undervalued fun- to their fundamental valuation. And he says this is a great time to be buying into these stocks because should they re-rate, should there be a reversion to the mean, you're going to pick that upside up. Has Hugh's approach worked? Um, yeah, absolutely. So he runs the River Mercantile UK Recovery Fund, which is, a, as I said, a deep value fund. So it's always looking out for these companies that I just talked about. If you look at one year, pretty much level. But if you look at three year and five year, and bear in mind that value has really underperformed growth investing more recently. But if you look at his fund, he's um, on three year basis delivered 38% versus 28% for the FTSE All Share. Over five years, he's done 67% versus 41% for the FTSE All Share. Okay, now we've heard a lot about so-called value investing recently, but there's no set definition. So how does Hugh Sargent value invest? He says he goes about it in a slightly different manner. So it isn't just kind of buying things that have fallen. He's looking, he uses something called PBT metrics, which stands for potential value and time. Now, um, what this means is that each stock that he buys into should have the potential to provide a better shareholder return than the market average. Um, the valuations need to double. And this is this is very impressive metric to have. Valuations need to double within, within three to five years. So he's buying seriously undervalued companies. Um, but for him, timing is everything. And what he means is that you should only be going into these stocks when you see signs of profit recovery. And this is how you avoid the so-called value traps that we often discuss on this show. Okay. So what kind of shares does taking this approach lead him to? Um, so he... He takes a very cautious approach in terms of what he goes into. So he's a very gradual investor. He might drop a little bit into a company and then if he sees more signs of profit recovery, he might go in a little bit more. And the same on the, out, on the way out as well. He'll sell down very slowly. He has a, a portfolio of around 200 stocks. And they're mainly in companies and sectors that are um, either in a secular or economic downturn. But if you look at his portfolio, he's got a quarter in UK banks. His top 10 holdings is littered with, you know, the big UK banks. You expect some, some big oil majors as well. What will be examples of those companies? Uh, so you'd have Lloyd's, HSBC, you've got BP, Shell, and then in the mining area as well, which is only just coming out of recovery in the last uh, year and a half or so, you've got companies like Anglo-American. What recovery areas does Hugh think could do well going ahead? 
Um, it's actually linked to the um, the oil companies that I just mentioned, but it's not them. It's actually oil services. So oil services suffered probably even worse than oil majors when the oil price tanked because what happened is these companies just stopped investing. They had they had absolutely no recovery, and some of them collapsed just because they had they no longer had sustainable business. But because the oil price has bounced back, these oil majors are starting to make reinvestments, which means the companies that service the oil rigs and provide consultancy and engineering and things like that, there's a lot of work coming back to them and they, they are starting to recover. So they are your classic recovery stock. Okay. And what oil services companies does uh, River and Mercantile UK Recovery hold? Uh, so when I was chatting to Hugh, one he uh, he singled out was Gulf Keystone, uh, which is an engineering services firm for, for kind of oil rigs and stuff like that. The price crashed almost. It was down over 90% from April 2014 when when the oil price started to tank. But if you look at year to date, it's been up over 140%. So again, that gives you the kind of the idea of the the stocks that um, Hugh was talking about when he says it's a double invaluation within three to five years. Rory, like I said before, there's a lot of talk about value style investing at the moment. Do you also think it'll become a profitable way to invest in the near future? Yeah, we do. You never get a a bell that tells you when it's the right time to move from growth into value, but growth now looks very expensive versus value. So, you know, to put some numbers around it, it's only been more expensive versus value 5% of the time in history than it is today. So we think it's probably a good time to be allocating away from kind of some of the technology names, for instance, the US growth stocks into value. And in fact, you know, for our clients that we look after money for, we've just made a switch out of growth stocks into value stocks. Value investing has worked out fantastically for Hugh Sargent. But what happens when it doesn't work out? Well, when it doesn't work out, you get caught in so-called value traps, where you might think that you've got something which is in a discount to its value. But that discount is never realized by by the market so you know it makes sense to put your money with a with a top manager someone like Hugh Sargent out or to make sure that you're buying stuff with a good kind of safety net which has fallen enough in price to, to, to so that you get paid for, for that value if you like. Okay I mean it sounds like quite a high risk obviously Hugh Sargent knows what he's doing but generally should you avoid funds that take a value approach because presumably we're not all going to be very successful? No, I mean, I think I think value investing works. You know, it's it's one of the things that's been shown, one of the factors that's been shown to work th- th- throughout history. So I would suggest finding a good manager within the value space, doing your homework on it, makes good sense. And it's probably a less risky approach to try to find your own value stocks, because that's when you can really start coming unstuck. Okay, so which funds and managers would you suggest? Well, coincidentally, we, we like Hugh Sargent. So he's a manager that we own in the global space and one that we've just allocated to. So his global fund owns some of the stocks within the UK fund, um, but also lots of kind of value type markets like Italy, like emerging markets. In the global space, we like the Artemis fund run by Jacob de Tuch. Um, in UK, which um, which fund is that specific? Is that Artemis Income? Artemis or Global Income. Artemis yeah. Global Income. Okay, which, yeah. Which has quite a value tilt. Um, so quite a lot in US banks. US autos, a lot in Europe and a lot in emerging markets as well. So these are kind of value flavoured, but not necessarily out and out value. In the global space, ones that are more out and out value would be names like Pazina and Harris, which are available for UK clients as well, less well known. What are the exact names of the funds, sorry? The, the, the funds are the Pazina Global Value and Harris Global Value as well. Um, so these are kind of more deep value type strategies. 
um, which would be more something to drip into for when value starts really performing. Um, and there's, there's some in the UK as well. Thank you, Rory. And have a look at this week's issue of Investors Chronicle to see whichever sectors and companies Hugh Sargent thinks offer value and recovery potential. It may not be the most exciting of assets, but cash is often the first line of defence during market turbulence and what you draw on in times of need. So arguably, it's the most important component of your wealth. A drawback of this asset has been the low rates of return it has offered for over a decade, meaning that many interest rates on many accounts are not as high as the rate of inflation. But Taha, the Financial Conduct Authority, the financial services regulator, is trying to improve returns for savers. What is it doing? So the FCA has has put out a report uh, in the last week, and what it's suggesting is that it creates something called a basic savings rate. Now, what this means is that it's going to be a floor on rates for customers of savings accounts that have had them for more than a year. Because what you have at the moment is that the, the longer time you spend with a, with a cash saving account or a cash ISA provider, the lower your rate gets, the more you go down. And over five years, it can, I think the analysis showed if you had an account for five years, you had a rate that was 1% lower than someone who had entered. But you also had a rate lower than someone who'd only been with them for two years. So it's suggesting that if you put a rate on this, then the longer term account holders would, would benefit from a higher rate. And um, how effective would this be if they implement it? It would be good for customers that have been with a provider for quite a long time, uh, which a lot of people have. Like if you've been with a provider for over five years, you should get a higher rate. Some analysis from Hargreaves Lansdowne suggests that it might be quite minimal. You'd only get a 0.1% effect, which makes you think it's not worth it. But also at the same time, what it might do is affect the introductory rates that you get because providers would have to obviously having to pay more to these uh, longer term customers would might have to take the revenue away from newer customers maybe it wouldn't make that much change in which case what can you do about um sort of low interest on cash it's kind of like as we discussed last week with the platform study there has to be a lot of self-motivation to change here um savers need to be doing a lot of work themselves Providers clearly are likely to abuse loyalty. So if you've been with your provider for a long time, there's almost a guarantee that you're getting a worse rate than you would than if you changed every 12 months, for example. If you take an introductory rate, which then falls away after 12 months, just change after 12 months. And the FCA has done a lot of work on making changing easier, particularly with cash accounts. And so you, that you should be able to take advantage of this. It just You need to be a bit more active, a bit more understanding of how the market works and really proactive in terms of what you want to do and you're throwing away money if you don't do these things. Okay, I mean that's um, good but how do you find out um, which are the best cash rates on offer? Uh, well, funnily enough, there's a handy table inside this week's uh, issue, Investors Chronicle. Apart from that, you can also go on comparison sites, things like Money Facts, Money Supermarket, Go Compare. You can even look with your own provider and try and change into a new account. Some of them let you do this. Some of them obviously don't because the rates are for new customers only. The other thing you should do is perhaps start to think about moving away from the big high street banks. So we're talking about HSBC, Santander, Lloyds, etc. Um, some analysis shows that these these providers will always offer rates lower than the market average. And the reason being is that they have branding power. They have huge amounts of customers and they, they don't have to do much to kind of retain loyalty. But if you look at some of the new challenger banks, Aldermore, Virgin Money, things like this, they are offering higher rates than these high street banks. So you should think about moving away from the, the big brands that we know and love. And I guess to building societies as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, should you look to hold your cash in an individual savings account, an ISA, so that you don't lose any of the interest you do get to the taxman? 
at this point in time, I, I don't think it makes much of a difference. Rates are so low that I, I don't think there's any taxable benefit from being in an ISA. And actually, if you have enough um, savings and enough money, you should be using your ISA for the, the more returning things like in well, in stocks and shares, you know, in equities, creating your portfolio via ISAs because the capital gains from that will always be higher than what you get on the interest rate. The interest rate difference between a cash ISA and a basic uh, cash savings account is negligible, so I, I don't think it's worth being in an ISA. And probably worth mentioning as well that if you're a basic rate taxpayer, you have your personal savings allowance, which means you can earn £1,000 of interest on cash accounts before you pay any tax. And if you're a higher rate taxpayer, you can earn £500 worth of interest before you pay any tax. Exactly. And at this point, obviously, to reach those levels that you just mentioned is going to be quite difficult given the low rates. Okay, Rory, how important a component of investors' wealth is cash, in your opinion? Definitely important and perhaps more important at the moment, given where markets are. I mean, as a rule of thumb, it probably makes sense for investors to have, say, three to six months worth of cash set aside um, in a sort of easy access savings account to cover you know, emergency needs, mortgage payments, bills, that sort of thing. Um, within a portfolio, you know, at the moment, for our port- clients' portfolios, we're running cash levels at about 5%, which we'd suggest is pretty high. And the reason for doing that is so that we can take advantage of kind of things that, that jump out in markets. So, you know, you look, look at markets at the moment, you're getting stocks which are kind of dropping quite a lot on, on a daily basis, similarly with kind of various different markets. So we like to have cash on the sidelines just to take advantage of those opportunities. Okay, so basically dry powder for when yeah. something comes along. Okay, thank you, Rory. Some really helpful suggestions. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more on value investing, the best rates on cash and commodities in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle of a website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.